Pearson-Ravitz story begins with Dr. Stephanie Pearson, a passionate OBGYN at the height of her career. But when a shoulder injury struck during a precipitous delivery, her dreams were shattered, leaving her unable to practice medicine. Determined to make a difference, Dr. Pearson became an advocate for her peers, guiding them through the complex disability process. Alongside insurance expert Scott Ravitz, Dr. Pearson founded Pearson Ravitz, a company determined to approach insurance differently. Together, they set their mission to educate and empower physicians to protect their most valuable asset, their income, and the most important people in their life, their family. Today, Pearson Ravitz serves the medical community in all 50 states. At Pearson Ravitz, they understand the unique concerns of physicians. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness or injury could leave you and your family in a devastating financial situation. But with a little planning and guidance, you can prepare for every possibility. Visit PearsonRavitz.com to schedule your consultation with a Pearson Ravitz advisor. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. I'm Dr. Bradley Block. As the year draws to a close, I get to spend valuable moments with my family. Whether you're taking care of patients or spending time with your family this season, I hope you're doing what fulfills you. And on that note, can you believe we're already at the end of the year? This is a time of reflection. So in my case, reflecting on over five years of podcasting. This week, we revisit the episodes that resonated the most with you, our listeners, and later, the ones with which I'm the most proud of. Today, we delve into the top three fan favorites. These episodes not only provided practical advice, but also offered perspectives that have shaped our understanding of what it means to be a physician in today's challenging healthcare landscape. I hope you enjoy them. Dr. Sarah Smith is a rural family physician and charting coach. She specializes in helping physicians with our charting backlogs so we can get home on time without the looming cloud of unfinished charts and callbacks. We discuss how to add efficiency to your day by making sure you are laser-focused on your patient and you aren't finished until that chart is closed. This frees up mental space for your next patient, making that visit a bit more efficient. By the end of the morning, you're going to need a plan for how you're going to tackle callbacks. We also discuss dictation, scribes, templates, and how this is all easier said than done. Dr. Smith went to medical school at the University of Western Australia and has worked in primarily rural communities as a family physician and is now in Edson, Alberta, Canada. Dr. Smith is a certified life coach and knows firsthand the experience of never being done and having unfinished charts and inboxes begging for your attention. She has hundreds of hours of experience coaching many physicians in the outpatient setting with improving their office and workplace efficiency and finding solutions to getting their work done during their clinical day so they can get home. You can find her at chartingcoach.ca. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Kicking off our fan favorites list is episode 135 with Dr. Sarah Smith, a game changer in how we approach charting. This episode struck a chord with many of you, resonating with the daily struggle of managing charting backlogs. Her strategies have helped me get home on time, and I'm sure many of you as well. In case you missed it, here it is. Dr. Sarah Smith, thank you for coming on the podcast today. 
Thank you so much for having me. So what is your origin story? How did you become a charting coach that is very specific? Yes. So I'm a family physician and I've mostly worked in rural environments. But after 15 years of doing family medicine, you would have thought I would have some idea how to get home with my charting and paperwork done. Every year it seemed to be getting worse and worse. Why would anyone think that? We all struggle with that. I've been practicing for 10 years and it only seems to be getting worse. So I think that assumption, right? I think so many of us, I would argue most of us are in that boat. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, perhaps I'd had enough of that. And I kept wondering what was wrong with me. As a resident, as a junior doctor, as a colleague, I would ask all my mentors, preceptors, and older generational consultants, how did they manage the paperwork and charting? How did they do it? And the typical answer was come in Sundays, do it in the evenings. And I'd had enough of that. I didn't want that anymore. That was not the answer I was looking for. And I was looking for answers. So my journey took about 18 months to figure out my charting and paperwork problem and understood finally that it was possible to get home with everything done. So that was the greatest gift I've ever given myself, that investment in time in learning how to do this for myself that I wanted to give back to my colleagues. So I went and certified as a life coach and started helping physicians in the same process that I had followed to get home with everything done. So what's the Cliff's Notes version of the process? Or at least one take home that we can start working on tomorrow. How about we start with that? Perfect. Yeah. So I talked to a lot of physicians about this. And step one is desiring it, like really, truly having had enough of the way it is day in and day out, and truly wanting something better for yourself, and knowing what that better is. So what is the result that you're looking for? Do you truly want to be home with everything done? Is that what you desire? And having a look at what that would mean for you. So we're not talking about getting a new EMR or increased staff or changing how many patients you see a day. We're talking about you in your environment with the staff you work with, the patients that you see, the volume that you're seeing. How can we make it the most simple solutions for you to get home with everything done? So step one is the charting. And that is figuring out your most simple solution for getting your charts done as you go. Okay, well, my problem, if I have a, either a particularly complicated assessment and plan, right? So we're writing a bunch of prescriptions, imaging, labs, right? That's going to be time consuming. And I'm looking at three patients in the waiting room. So I've then decided I'm going to save this for later so I can start on the next patient. And then I can catch up at lunchtime or I can catch up at the end of the day rather than having those patients wait longer in the waiting room. And actually, I tried this recently and ended up getting chewed out at the end of the day by a patient who had been waiting what they felt was an unreasonable period of time. You know, it's always in the eye of the beholder. So how do I finish that patient's chart without sweating those patients in the waiting room? Yeah. So it's not going to be an overnight process to be able to see patients and close notes. Part of the other thing that we do with physicians is start looking at the minutes and seconds in the room with the patient. So the amount of time you spend in the room with the patient is a significant portion of your day. And then 
we need to look at where do those minutes and seconds go? What are we doing in the room that could be better or more efficient, more productive to help us to gain back some minutes and seconds there? So it won't be just simply tomorrow going in and seeing a patient and closing a note and not expecting some amount of unfamiliar discomfort, running behind, the whole process is messy and uncomfortable. But when you are thinking about I will do that later. That thought you had of this was complicated. I will do it later. That decision there meant that you got homework. Okay. So if you have that commitment of, I do not want to do this later anymore. I'm done with later. So now what? How would we get that note done? Where would we get it done in a more effective way? And so we're not saying that you need to change how you practice. We're going to take what you do right now and make it the most efficient and simple solution for you. So what you do is you watch doctors with their patients. Is that what you do? You observe them to see? I just ask you, how do you do it right now? Okay. So then where do you find those minutes and seconds? There are lots of minutes and seconds. For instance, every time you leave the room to get something, ask yourself why. Start being observant. Start being aware of what do I leave the room for and why? Because no doubt... As you leave the room, there's somebody outside there to ask you a question. As you get interrupted, you're then having to think about their question, plus keeping in mind what's happening in the room, that whole process is slowing you down. Some physicians are getting multiple knocks on the doors during consultations. Some are getting pop-up messages. Some leave the room to go grab forms or stamps or stethoscopes or lidocaine or syringes or band-aids. All of those minutes and seconds are compounding. When you start your day, did you start right on time or was it nine minutes past the hour when you first get into that first room? So when physicians say, I hate running behind, but you started nine minutes late, now we have minutes and seconds that we can start to find. So that will be somewhat of a systems and processes, but we start with you. We start looking at what are you doing and how can you start to be curious with where are my minutes and seconds going? So that reminds me of a podcast I did with Sanj Kachel, who is a radiologist with a master's in positive psychology. And he was talking about focus and we likened it to our smartphones, where if you have all these different apps open, it draws some of the RAM memory. And so your phone doesn't work as efficiently. So you've got to close all of those apps and just focus on the one that you're doing. So what you're saying is, Whatever you're doing, stay in the room, 100% focused on the patients, no distractions, which the patients are going to appreciate, which also translates into a more efficient visit because then they have your undivided attention, which makes the visit go faster. So you don't need to make it seem like you have their attention. You actually are giving them your undivided attention. So that makes it go efficiently in and of itself. Yes. Okay, great. So also think about this. So if you're seeing the seventh patient of the day, and all your charts were closed. Think about your brain with that patient at its highest level of clinical decision-making because you can truly listen to the story and bring together all of the physical exam findings, plug in your illness script, getting those medical decision-making skills at their highest level because you're not thinking about, oh, I still have to do that. Oh, I forgot to do that for the last six patients of the day. Okay, I'm going to challenge that for a second. And I think your answer is going to be, it's a messy process and you have to keep working on it. Yes. But another thing that happens to me is when I'm done with my patients for the morning, the next thing I have to do is my callbacks. Any callbacks that happened 
any labs or studies that came in, but I've earned myself a break because I've been working very hard seeing patients. So what do I do? I eat my lunch and I scroll the internet, right? Instagram, Twitter, whatever. I'm scrolling mindlessly because I've earned it. Lo and behold, my lunch is up and it's time to start seeing patients again. And I haven't done any of the labs or any of the callbacks from the morning. So now that's been set for the end of the day. But haven't I earned it? So I'm going to suggest that you are a human and you have a human brain. So that thought right there, I deserve this. That there is an expensive thought. That thought right there is costing you going home on time. Right there. But our brain, our brain loves pleasure. It hates pain and it likes to do things efficiently. So what you just showed me was, I like pleasure. Facebook is pleasurable. I hate pain. Doing the inbox right now is the least likely of things I would love to do right now. And if I'm uncomfortable about that inbox because there's so many decisions to make in there and my brain's tired right now, then I'm going to escape into Netflix or into Facebook. And that escape or avoidance is actually false pleasure. It's not pleasure that you've earned and it's guilt-free. This is guilty pleasure because you're like, I really should be doing the inbox, but I really don't want to when I'm avoiding that inbox. And then we do things efficiently. So every lunchtime, your brain is linking, oh, it's time to check my Netflix. It's time to check my Facebook. It's time to check my Instagram. Whatever it is that you go to, you will always be pulled towards that every lunchtime. So you've linked lunchtime, eating, and Instagram. That's just how your brain goes. So you're doing it very efficiently. So you're right. In that lunch break, and I like to call it lunch break, but it's not really. Like you actually have work of today to do. There are messages, there are scripts to fill. At some point, you have to get them done. That is the work of today. If we want to get home with today's work done, that protected time is going to be super useful to you, but your brain isn't wanting to show up and do it. Of course it wants anything else, cookies, a chat with the staff, another cup of coffee. Like It will literally ask you to do anything but the inbox at that moment. That sounds like weight loss to me. That sounds like someone who's trying to lose weight, right? So they're avoiding these things that they know they're not supposed to eat. But I see it being a kind of a slippery slope like that. Like I'm on Weight Watchers, I'm watching my points. Oh, but I ate something and now I've got too many points. You know what? Today's a wash. Today's a wash. So you know what I'm going to do for the rest of the day because it's a wash. I'm going to eat whatever I want. And then suddenly I haven't written any of my notes for the day. I haven't done any of my calls. And now it's the end of the day and I've got all of those and I'm back to where I started and I'm back to my old habits, Mm -hmm. right? And yet when our patients come in and they are having trouble, I mean, I don't know, you might have a different answer for your patients. I don't have a good answer for them for how to tell them to effectively start and stick to new habits without ultimately ending up back to their old habits. I mean, we do have an episode a long time ago with BJ Fogg, who's a PhD who studied habits, right? Tiny habits. I've tried that. So if I don't have a good answer for them to stick with their habits, how could I have a good answer for myself? Mm -hmm. How do I make sure I don't end up just back in my old habits again? So that's a great question. And so a lot of what we do together is CBT training. So it's CBT for you and it's CBT for your patients. So that motivational interview, some of those persuasion techniques that you were talking about on a recent podcast as well. So think of your brain like a six-year-old. If you ask your six-year-old to do homework, 
and you don't supervise it and you give them a big stack of paper, where will you find them in 10 minutes? You'll find them under the table playing Lego or upside down on the couch, right? Anywhere else, like literally anywhere else. When our patients want to smoke and we've taken them outside every morning to smoke, when you tell that brain you can't have a smoke today, it's going to have a tantrum. When we tell you it's time to do your charts or it's time to do your inbox, your brain wants to have a tantrum. So we treat it like a six-year-old. So our brain does not like to make a plan and carry it out in one step. So we plan ahead for that inbox. We start to prioritize what should I be doing in my, you know, before I start for the day, if I had some protected inbox time then, what would make sense for me to do in my middle of the day break and what would make sense for me to do before I go home in the afternoon. So we start planning for ourselves that future self. So you're going to say tomorrow in my middle break when I'm doing inbox, it would make sense to do this, this, and this. Okay. So we've made a plan. Then Brad at lunchtime tomorrow is going to show up and want to do anything else. Just so now we treat you nicely. We say, listen, I've planned it out for you. All you have to do is this half an hour of work, starting with the labs and then the phone messages. That's it. At 1.30, you're going to go see patients so that you're making that relationship with yourself where we're not being mean and nasty anymore. We're not going to give you 600 results to do in 30 minutes. That's just being, that's just being mean, right? Then we're mad at ourselves from yesterday and we don't want to do it today. Then as you finish that work that you've set for yourself, we start to be proud of you. You start to say, that was awesome. Look at me. I'm going home earlier than ever. That's fantastic. I love this. Thanks for making that happen today. So this is how we start to create new relationships with ourselves and how to help our patients with that persuasion, the planning, the treating your brain, just like a six-year-old. It's going to have a tantrum when you tell it it's time to do homework. We expect that. We know it's going to show up and we say, it's okay. I know you want cookies, but we're getting this work done because we planned it out so we can go home earlier. And then we just keep in mind that most important why. Why did we want this in the first place? Remember, I said at the beginning, we want to know where you're going. What is the result you want to create for yourself? What if anything was possible to see patients and go home after the last patient with everything done? Because it is, if you want it bad enough and if you're ready to do the work to get there. Okay. I'm mentally getting there. Were there any other things that you would find when you're coaching people to squeeze these few seconds or few minutes out of the patient's visits? Like I get, okay, I've got to stop screwing around, right? Mm -hmm. Although part of that, I would blame my partners because we don't have an office. We have, it's called a pit where it's just a U-shaped room where everybody has their computers. So there's a lot of chatting going on. So I would actually, it would probably make sense for me to do my callbacks in one of my exam rooms further away from the temptation of chatting with my partners. So I guess engineering your day. That's right. It's really hard to change other people. You can desire it as much as you want. It's like, they should stop talking. They should respect my time. They should, they should, they should. The problem is you can't control other people. You can only control the person in front of you. And so when you have that commitment of, I would really love to just smash through these phone calls and get home. And you're like, the U-pit is not helping me. So I'm going to go choose a consult room that is perfect. And then you try it out and you're like, the consult room was a terrible idea. The internet was wrong and the connection was bad. That didn't work. Now what? So not quitting and saying that was a terrible idea back to the U-pit and you end up exactly where you were before. You're simply saying, I'm going to get this result for myself. 
I'm going to have a pile of success or fails. That's fine. So long as I don't quit, so long as I don't quit and I'm still walking in the direction of I'm creating the best clinical day for myself, that's when we get the result you want. So during the visits themselves, we want to minimize distractions from the patient interaction. So we bring it from A to Z, straight line from the beginning to the end of the visit with no leaving the room, no mental distractions, no physical distractions. Is there anything else that you've seen where we can shave a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes off our visits? You know the, the way you work in your day. And so every physician is going to be slightly different. You might find templates helpful to you. If there's something you're doing a thousand times a day, like bringing up a blank form and ticking boxes, start being curious about what do I put in those boxes and start to help yourself make this simpler or faster. Being curious with how long do I chit chat for and why? So you know that rapport building at the beginning, your patients typically know you very well. And our time is very precious in that room. So if we're doing a lot of chit-chat, we're going to start to compound those minutes in the day. Just be curious with yourself about why you've decided to spend that time and is it of true value to the patient. And then we're really learning to lead the consultation. So if you say yes to five things in the room, what else are you saying yes to? You're probably saying yes to doing that referral letter later and writing the note later because you've decided to do too many things in the room. And I say it, you've decided to. It's 100% your responsibility how long that consultation goes for. When we understand that it is within our ability to craft that consultation so that it runs to time with enough time for charting, then we're curious with ourselves. What am I saying yes to in the room and why? And thinking about decisions for now and later. So if I say yes to that chest pain because I've triaged it as important, I'm also saying yes to making my patients wait 20 more minutes while I do this. That reminds me of an interview I did with Jonathan Winkle, who's MedPeds in Federally Qualified Health Center, where one of his recommendations was you set an agenda with the patient at the beginning where you get to choose two things and they get to choose one thing or vice versa. So you're setting limits at the beginning of the visit where they get to set their priorities, but you also get to set your priorities. And then that sets, so you're not doing five things, you're limiting it to three. So I think that works really well. Even that as a rule though, three things can still be too many. If you've got one big thing we have to discuss today. But agenda setting, a lot of physicians trip over this agenda setting piece because then they get the list and then they don't know what to do with it and how to make it one or two things off the list. They get really stumbling over this. We do a lot of coaching around this. Agenda setting is shown to help craft those consultations into a shorter time period if you know how to lead the consultation. That means I'm going to do this and this today because they look really important. And is that okay with checking with patient or if I miss something that they're not remembering and then we have that bit of negotiation, it's still going to be a tripping point. It's going to be unfamiliar if you first start doing it and you'll hate it. You'll be like, why do I have these 10 things? What do I do with them now? So understanding that while agenda settings in the literature shows reduced time in the room, not necessarily. Some physicians really don't like it. Before our conversation, I was, and still am, considering getting a scribe. Because if I got a scribe, then they would be closing my chart notes. They would be finishing my chart notes. I wouldn't need to be doing it. I'd be in the next room with the next patient while they're finishing up the chart note. 
So then I wouldn't have to be as strict with myself about making sure that it's done because I've basically outsourced it. How do you feel about scribes? You would think that a scribe would be helpful, but here's the issue with scribes. So our staff in our offices are either strategists or tacticians. Tacticians do very well off a flowchart. They can tick boxes all day long, but no think. Strategists are thinkers. You are a strategist. All physicians are strategists. We have to think through problems and come up with solutions. So many of the staff in our offices are just tacticians. They're just going to do as they're told. So a scribe is going to be a significant onboarding process. You have to be committed to slowing right down if you want to get this result for yourself because they don't know how you like it recorded, where you put it in the chart. Most physicians are still doing their assessment plan, prescriptions, MRIs, referral letters, all the other pieces. The only bit that's written down is a history of presenting complaint, possibly the physical exam if you've spoken it out loud to them and helped them understand what you mean when you say those things. And then the assessment and plan, if you've got a great strategist, some people do, as you're chatting to the patient to explain what's happening and what you're planning to do, they can put that into medical speak and put it into the chart note. But most physicians are then doing their assessment plan, scripts, all the things after the encounter. So it isn't see the patient and everything is done as you would expect. So just understand if you get a scribe, it's a significant onboarding process. I would recommend that you do that via video if possible, because when they leave after a month, which they can do, the next time you do it, there's less onboarding because they can watch a few of the training videos, for instance. So you're building an asset for your business. Same with as you're onboarding new medical staff. It's just a way of building an asset for your business is to conduct those trainings in a way that you can record them and understand them for future staff, holiday staff, leaving staff, coming staff. Fantastic idea. What about carry forward comments, templates? Do you have any other recommendations, dictation, dragon? What do you recommend that your clients do to make themselves more efficient? Yeah. So if you know that you always do certain things in a certain way, especially like if you're a specialty and you always have the certain diagnoses that you're always using, then obviously templates are going to be helpful if they're yours and you've created them and you're not constantly editing them. So you want to use shortcuts and templates that you've crafted for your use. So it is actually making it faster in the room. So anything that saves you minutes and seconds, I'm all for it. Dictation. So if you are typing in the room and you want to change to dictation, that's a whole new process to learn. It might be faster, but it's going to be a learning process. So that's just another obstacle to getting what you want. So if you're already used to charting by typing, you're probably going to optimize that first. A lot of physicians do like to dictate. So now we need to make sure we build in time for dictation within that consultation appointment time. So if the appointment time is 20 minutes and you need six minutes for dictation, now you've got 14 minutes in the room with the patient. And if we understand that, then we can be very clever with our time. So you can leave the room and go and dictate and get it done. So that would be how you see patients in closed notes all day long. Yeah. For me, I dictate in front of the patient so that they hear a summary of the visit. At the end of the visit, this is what we talked about. This is what we're going to do. This is exactly what's going into your chart. And then at least in our office, it prints out if I get my notes done on time. That's making a big assumption there. So it works really well in theory, but I've got to actually practice what we're preaching right now in order to make sure that they actually get that. So that's always really helpful. What about reviewing results? 
one of my partners, if it's a simple result, like strep test is negative, right? He'll have his medical assistant call. And if it's a complicated result, they need to come in. So he's not going to review anything like, oh, your CAT scan. So something that I do, they're coming in for a sinus problem, get a CAT scan to the sinuses. Turns out it's normal. It's probably not sinus problem. It's probably migraines. So I will call them with the CAT scan result, whereas he brings them in. So that's his style. At least when I was starting out and trying to build a practice, I called everybody to just build rapport, build a brand, give everyone the top shelf experience. I just don't have time for that now. So what is it that you recommend that your clients do? So that is going to be super dependent on the pay structure for the physician. So if you're not getting paid for phone calls, that patient that you mentioned that you thought was sinus headaches and then the CT is normal, well, we still have a patient with headaches. So it's of good value to bring that patient in a personal encounter if you're only getting paid for in-person visits. So that when you see that CT, that patient for your particular physician will be an in-person visit because then the physician's getting paid to do the work and the patient's getting reviewed with regard to their headaches. So we didn't find the answer, now what? It could be migraine. Do we need to listen to the story again and do another exam? Is there any other things that we've missed about this now that we know? Oh, right. I'm an ENT, so I don't see (laughs) migraines. I would be sending that to someone else. You're a family physician, so you're carrying it through. Yeah, so it's a different dynamic because you're going to continue treating that patient, Yes. whereas I will not. Exactly. So that's where we start to build rules within your inbox. So what pauses you? What slows you down? So you see the CT result. It's a normal sinus. And that question that comes back and forward in your brain, should I call them? Shouldn't I? Should I? Shouldn't I? I don't know. What should I do? Once you decide what you do, you decide your MA calls them and says, your sinus is a normal back to your doctor to investigate your headaches. There's your rule. And now those CT scans are super fast because you know exactly what you do with them rather than kicking them around in that inbox for weeks and weeks, deciding what should I do with that? That's just annoying me now. Should I call the patient? Should I get them in? Should I just, I don't know. As you keep closing it, you're seeing it like five, six, seven times. That is wasting our time and making that inbox take way longer than it should. So as you come across stumbling blocks in the inbox, start to be curious, how do I solve this? What do I end up deciding to do? Because everything eventually leaves the inbox. How did you solve it? And then you know for next time how to make it even faster. One of my other hangups is my inbox with regards to calling people back where they didn't pick up the phone. Yes. They didn't pick up the phone. It's still in my inbox. I called. (laughs) Maybe I left the voicemail. I waited for a long time for that stinking voicemail message to finish. I left my message and now can't leave the inbox because there's an important result in there. So how do I prevent that from accumulating? Because that's another thing that like just slowly accumulates. When am I going to call this patient back? Maybe it's later in the week. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's right. Because it seems like what you're saying is have systems so that you know that's when you're going to address this. So what's my system? Okay, so how did you solve it? Do you end up leaving it there and trying the patient multiple times? Because that's not physician work. Yes. That's somebody else's job. To call them, find out when they're going to be available and schedule it for you to be available if it is truly that you want to get them on the phone. Or you have somebody on the phone who gets them on the phone and then patches it through to you. So you're doing inbox until that call comes through. So you get to decide this is the thing. You're the boss. Yeah. And we forget to empower physicians to say, hey, 
that's not physician work. That's a very expensive receptionist at that point, seeing if a patient's available on the phone for those cold calling. You might decide, I love to call patients with their results. I do that between one and two on Fridays. They're very fast appointments. Be available between one and two on Friday and the MA sets them all up for you. You get to decide how you want to do this. There's a thousand different ways to figure it out. You just have to make the decision. How do I want to do it? How do I get paid to do it? What do I like to do? What closes the loop for me in the best way? You might just start sending letters out. But again, if you're not sure the patient's going to receive it, for you, it's not a safety net. You can't close the loop. That's not the one you're going to choose. That's not the one for you. So it's very physician dependent on how they're getting paid, what they decide to do, what's the flexibility within their schedule. Many physicians have no flexibility in here about when patients can be booked in, how long for that type of thing. So we've really got to work within the systems that you have available to you. Come up with a system, stick with it so that it's not on your mind, nagging you and sitting in your inbox indefinitely. Yes, correct. Got it. Well, this has been fantastic. I'm going to start applying it tomorrow. Perfect. I'm going to start coming up with systems, sticking with them, and I'm going to be closing out my notes after each visit, or at least I'm going to start trying and recognize that just like eating better and exercising more, it's going to be a messy process and I'm going to fall off the wagon as long as I'm willing to get right back on. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know exactly how you're going to get there, but so long as you don't quit, you can fail and succeed as many times as you like until you get there. Okay. So what services are you offering? The Charting Champions Program for Physicians. And that is a lifetime access program for physicians. We have the core modules, which are the charting after every patient, the inboxes, the consultation, the interruptions and distractions, and the backlog. Because every physician who comes to me has a backlog of some description, whether it be a few days old, or whether it be months and months or years and years of uncomplete charts. So we do all of that inside the program. We have a supportive community of your peers so that you have physicians to talk to and ask them all about templates and carry forward comments and all the things that you love to get in the weeds about. We have the coaching calls weekly where you get to come online and pick my brain and think out loud about your problem. So we really, coaching is simply what we did today. We're just examining what's happening for you and why. Where are your obstacles? What do you love about Instagram at lunchtime? And what would you be willing to do instead in order to be able to get home with everything done? Um, So that's coaching, very simply, just looking at what's going on and finding your simple solutions. And then I have a guest speaker each month. So you can learn other things like burnout or overeating or money coaches or stress coaches or sex coaches. We have lots of different resources for physicians inside. Wow. Yeah. It's super fun. So where can people find you? What's the website? Chartingcoach.ca. Canada. I wouldn't have thought the accent was Canadian. It isn't. It's Australian, but I've been here for eight years. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I also have a second program called Smarter Charting, which is for your nurse practitioners and physician assistants if they're struggling to keep up with you in your clinical day. I separated the two groups because physicians just love to talk to each other. I understand. It's not that it's different content because we're all charting the same stuff. It's just that we're tribal, I like to say. We're tribal. So we like to communicate with our own. Okay. Wonderful. I love it. Well, I think it's fantastic. I think this is a huge point of burnout for people. It really plagues us. And a lot of this just comes from habits and systems that we need to sit down and work on. And it helps to have someone coach you through it and some peers to work through it with you. So wonderful. You're doing great things for physicians. So I applaud you for it and thank you for it. 
Oh, my pleasure. I would love everybody to get home with everything done. That is my mission and vision statement for everybody. Fantastic. Well, thanks again and have a good night. What a great show with charting coach Sarah Smith. Next on our list of fan favorites is episode 200, a truly eye-opening discussion with Dr. Naomi Lawrence-Reed. Her journey, journey from pediatrician to entrepreneur has inspired many of you as she shared invaluable insights into diversifying income streams using our medical training. This episode encouraged us to think beyond traditional clinical roles. Dr. Naomi Lawrence-Reed is a pediatrician and founder of Doctoring Differently, a course and coaching platform designed to teach physicians of all specialties how to transition out of full-time clinical and academic practice while starting lucrative and flexible careers that best utilize their medical training and experience. We discuss all of her different income streams like per diem, locum tenens, veteran and social security disability exams, medical witness work, aesthetics, how she got into each of them, how we can get started, and why it's okay for a pediatrician to inject Botox into adults. Dr. Lawrence Reed initially intended on a career as a pediatric emergency medicine specialist, but she was unwilling to yield to the confines of restrictive hospital contracts, non-negotiable salaries, exhaustive administrative duties, and oppressive call schedules. She developed the Doctoring Differently curriculum in order to give physicians the tools to choose themselves and transform their individual passions and expertise into gratifying careers with increased income, tremendous freedom, and enhanced quality of life. Dr. Lawrence Reed is a proud Boston area native, currently based in San Diego, California. She attended Wake Forest University, University of Massachusetts Medical School, and she completed pediatric residency at Children's Hospital at Montefiore, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. You can find her at doctoringdifferently.com. Dr. Naomi Lawrence Reed, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Longtime listener, first time caller, big fan. Thanks for having love me. It, love it. Thank you. Um, so, Let's start off with the differently doctoring origin story, or rather doctoring differently. Right. Uh, okay. Well, origin story. I am a pediatrician. I uh, did my, I went to medical school in Massachusetts. I did my residency in New York City. I actually really enjoyed residency. Uh, I was in a 10-story children's hospital. It was fun and exciting, big class, lots of good medicine. Uh, and I imagined pediatric emergency medicine to be my future soon after that. I began working in a PZR and applied to pediatric fellowship, pediatric emergency fellowship, did not, uh, what, did not get it, was not accepted or did not match, uh, but continued to work in a PZR for almost three years and was really unhappy and miserable. Uh, and wait, 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 I'm sorry. You applied for, so by the way, fellow, non-fellow matching, I uh, applied for a rhinology fellowship, okay. just doing noses, didn't, didn't match. So okay. similar boat. Um, but you said you applied for, and this is just my lack sure. of understanding of peds. You sure. applied for a peds ER fellowship mm -hmm. and then didn't get it. But you still went and worked in a PZR anyway. I was already working. So PZRs are kind of split into higher acuity and lower acuity. Lower acuity maybe being closer to an urgent care type of uh, acuity. So, yes, there are parts of, e of pediatric emergency departments that are staffed by general pediatricians, if that to answer your question. So the, to work in the higher acuity section were the fellowship trained pediatric emergency medicine people, of which at one point I aspired to become. Uh, okay. So maybe you could get experience doing that uh, lower acuity and then get hired in a higher acuity one. So kind of a way to 
bypass the fellowship? Oh, well, I don't know that you can fully bypass it these days, but it was kind of like my introduction to the department. I thought maybe a um, uh, like yes. an audition almost. Exactly. Yeah. You start working there and they're like, you know what? Why don't you do a fellowship here? Yeah. Oh, great. You know, I never thought of that. I'd love to. Yeah. That part. Exactly. Okay. So, so, so I, I, that is exactly what happened. I, I was working there and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, they hired me as a, as an attending to, uh, to, you know, be the attending on record and see tens to a lot of, a lot of children daily. They must uh, trust me enough to hire me as a fellow. Uh, and they did not, or bring me on as a fellow. So I did not uh, match in that fellowship. Uh, and this was now 2015. So I finished my residency in 2014. Um, but I continued to work in the PZR. I, at that time, did not really want to do outpatient. Uh, I, I didn't have a great next plan other than continuing to work in the PZR. Uh, however, PZR is uh, here. Um, it's, it's in an ER. That's I don't have a cute joke. It's in an emergency department. And that means it's open 24 hours a day. And uh, you're working nights and weekends and holidays. And I was exhausted and being kind of the lower acuity part of the ER as a pediatrician. I'm looking in ears at three in the morning. And in my mind, I'm thinking this is not this will not be my career. Um, and as I tried to do some sort of soul searching and kind of listening and looking around my community, I live in San Diego. Uh, I, you know, people just told me, really, your only options are another fellowship or working in an outpatient setting. And I just thought, you know, at the time, not married, no children. I thought, you know, I have a lot of flexibility in my life. I could do anything. I can go anywhere. I'm going to take my chances and do that. Um, so I, you know, the short answer, there's a whole lot in there. Some great stories I could tell about kind of what got me to that place. Uh, but ultimately, I left in May of 2017 and started exploring just out of curiosity, first out of survival. I went per diem at another institution. I had to pay bills. No one was there to pay them but me. Um, so I, I had to have that bridge of just per diem income to pay loans and living expenses. But then that snowballed into discovering that any physician can do aesthetics, discovering that um, I could do locums, I could do veteran disability work, I could do medical expert witness work, I could do telemedicine. So now I'm almost five years from that point where I left the PZR and I have now explored hmm, seven or eight different types of work for physicians. And it has been truly incredible. So I think that answered maybe your question, just trying to gloss over a lot of the little details about the origin story. It was initially out of survival. Um, it morphed into curiosity. And now it is truly just a fun, lucrative ride. So I, I just want to point out something to the listeners that we often mention on the podcast, which is hedonic adaptation, right? Like you get used to anything. So now I'm over 10 years out from my residency and things do get monotonous. You know, it's, you know, I'm seeing a lot of ear infections. I'm seeing a lot of sinus infections. I'm seeing a lot of, right. And so, yeah, each patient tells a story and everyone's an individual fine, but there is some monotony there. And when you have seven or eight different income streams and you might be like, you know what? I don't necessarily, I'm not in love with this one. So, you know, we're going to do this one, which might lead to another one, which leads to another one. And so you're constantly learning. It's constantly something new. Um, and so that then you don't have that hedonic adaptation. And one thing that everyone always tells me 
with kids is, oh, it goes so fast, right? And, and so the way that you, the, that's not advice. That's just like, thanks. <laughs> no, not helpful. But the way that you combat that is by slowing time down is by paying attention and being present. So how do you be present during, you know, something monotonous? You're not present during your commute to work, but when you're doing as many things as you're doing, you have to, you're paying attention and it slows down time in a good way. It, well, unless you really hate what you're doing and then you don't have to do it because you've got seven other income streams. Exactly that. Exactly that. I have come again. And I just want to tell your listeners and you, I certainly was not, I, this was in no way my future. If you had asked me in medical school what my goal was, it was going to be a community pediatrician. I was going to bring cupcakes to clinic or to the hospital every Friday, not cause any problems, just do my job, you know, see, do my thing. Um, so this is something I truly have uh, evolved into. And initially, I think out of survival, I keep using that word in that, you know, I feel, you know, people have told me, physicians have told me what I've done is quote unquote brave. Oh, you left your job. You're exploring so many things. That's so brave. And I tell them I've never felt brave a day in my life. I felt like my hand was on a hot stove and I pulled it off. That's what it felt like to me. It didn't feel like a, a, a courageous act of, of valor or, or bravery. It felt like I am unhappy. I don't see a path upward or forward here as a pediatrician and a PDR, you're a stepchild, you know, this is a fellowship based, you know, world. And as a, just a pediatrician, quote, unquote, unquote, uh, you don't have really much room to ascend in administrative roles or teaching roles or anything else. Um, and being in academics, maybe you've discussed that your your academics is essentially Latin for underpaid. So uh, <laughs> and then you put pediatrician in there. And uh, again, as your listeners may know, pediatricians underpaid, least paid of all specialties. Um, and so I, I just came to the realization that none of this was going to work for me. I didn't at the time I maybe had some regrets about going into pediatrics, but thinking back, I can't imagine doing another specialty. It just was, I need to just figure out how to do it differently. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of differently, you are doctoring differently I and am. here at the physician's guide to doctoring. We <laughs> use doctor also as a verb. So yes. how did you end up deciding to use it as a verb? <laughs> well, uh, I'll, 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 I think bring them, maybe the mood somber it just a little bit. Um, my mother, uh, who passed away a few years ago, unfortunately, oh, she used sorry. to say to me, thanks. She used to say to me, you know, she was eternally proud, um, and got to see me graduate med school and residency. And she used to say, I wish I could watch you doctoring. I wish I could see you doctoring. Um, of course she never did. Cause I would have been weird, but that those were, that was a word, uh, to her. And then to me, because she said it to me so often. Uh, so, you know, a few years ago, and I guess I'll, I'll kind of get into more of the story of how this, my platform evolved, but after I'd spent a few months really kind of of going back and forth about kind of what my voice would be, what my platform would be. Uh, I thought I needed a name. I needed a punchy name that said it all in, in the name, in the title. And uh, I was just sitting on my couch and it, it, it came to me. It, and, you know, it had been almost oh, about two years since she passed at that point. We were deep in the pandemic. It was like, you know, bleak days out here. But when that kind of hit me, I thought that's, that's it. Doctoring differently. It's every, it, it says it all, you know, you're still a doctor, you're still performing and acting and serving as a physician. 
You're just doing it in a different way, not a better way, not a worse way necessarily. I'm partial. I think it is a far better way. But at the end of the day, it's a different way. It's an alternative uh, that most of us were not exposed to in at any part of our training. No, that's a really sweet story. I love that. I love that. Um, so, so what are these different, differently streams that you're getting? If we could just, sure, you know, go through the go through. different ones in in list form, and then we'll sure. explore some of them. Sure, uh, I'll kind of I'll. I think of them in the order in which I explored them. So it started with per diem work, then locums, then aesthetics, Botox fillers, then uh, telemedicine, then uh, uh, veteran disability work, medical expert witness work, social security work. I think that's it. I don't know. Six, seven, I think. I wasn't counting. Sorry, but yes, no problem. Sounds about right. Okay. Okay. Fair. Um, Social security work. That's a new one for me. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. What Uh, is that? Sure. So there are, well, break it down. There are a number of federal programs that require physicians to kind of determine how money is allocated to patients. Uh, Social security provides uh, benefits, uh, provides financing for children. Well, I'm a pediatrician. This is pediatric work. Uh, But let's say children who are, um, who have a disability or are in foster care. There are a number of federal programs that uh, these children are eligible to apply for, or maybe a child has a chronic illness. The family earns too much to necessarily apply for, say, Medicaid. They are uh, eligible to apply for other federal federally based services, if that makes sense, to um, to kind of supplement, you know, yes, we make a little bit too much, but no, we also cannot afford a half a million dollars a year in medical bills, that kind of thing. So there are some nuance here. There's some nuance in terms of these federal programs. Uh, and again, so, so my role uh, when I do the social security adjudication work uh, is I am a medical expert and I can be called upon for either a chart review where I get a, a, a plaintiff's or a claimant claimant's records ahead of time um, and then come to a decision and say, you know what, based on this criteria, this child has severe ADHD or severe autism. And I and based on my expert opinion, uh, this child should be eligible for additional services or compensation. Um, and so that is how Social Security works. That's kind of interesting. There's like a judge on the phone. And with COVID, it's actually been really nice to be able to do it virtually because it's, oh, this is an important part for you and your listeners. This is federal work. So there's no specific medical license involved. Uh, so I... you. You don't need, I don't, I've adjudicated cases from New Jersey, Massachusetts. I live in California. I only have a California medical license. It doesn't matter. Um, when you're doing federal work, you can do it to any state uh, without having to go get that license. So that's- And I know what the listeners are thinking and let me know if you're not comfortable ask, answering. Sure. What's the pay for something like that? Oh, sure. So per case, uh, the rate I've negotiated, I'm a big, big, big fan of negotiation. By the way, I do not accept any first offers for almost any of the work I do. Um, I, I am paid, I think, $220 per case. Uh, and these cases last on the phone 
roughly 30 minutes, uh, but I'll do about 30 minutes of prep work reviewing the chart ahead of time. So based on the rate, I'll tell you that I and I was clear with the agency I worked with uh, that two hundred and twenty dollars buys them basically an hour of my time. I'm very clear about that. Uh, So I said, you know, if you if you're expecting a full day review and like combing through hundreds of charts, you're not going to get that at this rate. Uh, and they uh, understood it. And yep. we have proceeded. I've, I've, we've proceeded as such. It's the end of another busy day. You just saw 20, 30 patients, maybe more. Instead of heading home for dinner with your spouse or playing with your kids, you now begin your night job, charting. Charting is critical for patient care, billing, and medical legal liability, but it steals our focus from our patients, eats away at our time with our families, and keeps us up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains all of us. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions for you. Charting is done before your patient walks out of the room. Wait, because it gets better. Freed learns your style over time. It's AI just like a human scribe would, except it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by 3,000 plus clinicians from every specialty. It's HIPAA compliant, takes 30 seconds to learn, and costs only $99 a month. You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai, F-R-E-E-D.ai. Listeners of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring can use the code PGD50 for $50 off the first month. How'd you get in touch with them? Uh, so that backs up to the veteran uh, veteran disability work I do. Um, and so there are, when I talk, right. I'll just kind of- That's interesting because the pediatrician, right? Like I know fa- we send children off to war, right? They're like 18, 19. They're kind that. of, yes. They're, yes. you know, but, but right. like when I think of the VA, I think of like the Vietnam and the World War II, Korean War vets that I took care of when I rotated through as a, as a resident. So like, how does a pediatrician fit in there? Great question. Uh, all right. Well, this is, brings me to eventually how I got, it, it was a, it was the VA then to the social security, but again, federal. Um, I connected again in the pan, when I started having the idea for doctoring differently, I'd only, I was only up to like four different um, streams. And I reconnected with a friend here in San Diego, a family medicine physician, found her on LinkedIn. And I was seeing all this veteran work. And last I knew, she was still a practicing family physician at a, at a local large hospital system. So I called her up and I said, you know, what's going on? What's all this veteran stuff? And it's, you know, is this something I could potentially teach my future students and clients about? I in no way was, as you just said, imagining a pediatrician could do VA work or veteran disability work. Um, she was so passionate about this kind of stream that she had found her own, own husband was a Marine veteran. And uh, at that point, she uh, illuminated or, or taught me uh, that, again, this is a federal a federal um, uh, ruling um, by Congress that any physician of any specialty also PAs, nurse practitioners, advanced practice practitioners can also perform this veteran disability work. Um, And it does not matter the specialty at all. Uh, And now that I've done this work for over a year, uh, I can confirm that it is a lot of just 
third and fourth year medical school knowledge. These are not diagnostic exams. These are not clinical exams. I am not ordering tests. I'm not treating anything. I am basically a veteran will claim as they dissociate from the military or separate, uh, they will claim, you know, a number of ailments or illnesses. Um, they will come to their visit with me. I have their entire medical record in their hand. I get their, uh, their, you know, personal, uh, their, their history. Uh, I may do a brief physical exam. That's almost always just musculoskeletal. Um, maybe it's, a, if there's a scar, the VA likes us to measure scars. Um, but that is really the end of it. I'm not ordering again, not ordering tests, not treating, not diagnosing. Um, and I compile a report based on what's in the chart, what they've told me and the physical exam. Um, so it was initially, you know, it, I was about 10 years out of medical school. So 10 years since I'd treated an adult patient and it was initially a little like, Oh, okay. Okay. You know what? I can do this. I've done this before. I can do this again. And it's been lovely. It really has been wonderful. Uh, I've refreshed myself on the Korean War and the time frame and Agent Orange. And it's I'm kind of a little bit of a history buff. So I've enjoyed that part. And so, again, these veterans are not sick. This is not a clinical visit. So a lot of them just like to talk and are happy to talk uh, to someone about their experiences in in in. Not not all of them have been in combat, but at least during their active duty service. So it's been wonderful. The, but to answer your original question, the company, the large, large contractor that facilitates these VA exams um, also has a contract to facilitate Social Security and other federal um, programs that require physician uh, physician expertise. Who is that? <laughs> it's called Maximus. Maximus. So they, Maximus. this company has like a billion dollar contract. You need to the vet, the Department of Veteran Affairs has like something like a forty eight annual billion dollar budget. Just know that there's a lot of money in the VA and all of this work. So uh, yeah, yeah, they have these contracts to facilitate these exams, onboard physicians, create the infrastructure, create the EMR. And uh, yeah, and and so they, not only do they have, you know, one arm is the veteran world, but these other arms are social security, are um, uh, they, there's, there's a number, there's a number of different, of different things. So it's been, it's been a fun journey. So I was in with one, and I just slid over and got in with some others. So with the the VA, you're just recording an exam, a history and exam. You're not deciding anything. Whereas no. with Social Security, yes. you are actually making a decision on what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. No, just actually, no, it's it's very similar. I give my uh I give my expert opinion. Uh, and then a for Social Security, a judge actually decides uh, a, a judicial, I'm sorry, a uh, yes, a judicial, you know, a, a local judge or local kind of circuit judge makes the decision. He asks me questions. He or she asks me questions. I give my opinion. And then I don't actually know the decision they make. They make it after you know, I've gotten off the phone with them. Um, and same with the VA, I'll say, I'll make, you know, I'll put my report together. It goes to the VA, the VA makes a decision. I don't hear what the decision was. So, you know, I know that a lot of physicians think, you know, and, and I could say the same about medical expert witness work. If we get there, uh, you know, physicians, we have this, 
I don't want to say godlike mentality, but we think that a lot of this work is, you know, all, uh, all the control and all the powers in our hands. And, you know, it's a lot of pressure. And with so much of this work, you're just giving your opinion. You're just giving your expert opinion. That's what people want from us. Uh, and they'll pay us a lot of money to do it. We'll get, again, medical expert witness work. We'll get to that. Um, they'll pay you a lot of money for your opinion. And then someone else makes the decision. So, there should be a little less pressure off of off of you for that. So which of all of your non-clinical, because yeah. we're going to get to the Botox and fillers, but of, of all of your non-clinical sure. intra- income streams, which one was the easiest to break into? Easiest, easiest to break into. Huh. Um, that's that. I wasn't expecting that question. That wasn't in your prompts ahead of time. It was, it was the easiest to bring into. I will say for me, I kind of roll with the punches. So I'm often not even looking for new things. I just kind of trickle into them. So it's hard to say if it was easy or not. I mean, my first one I'll say was per diem work. And I know that's not like a sexy one, but really it was just another hospital system in town who needed per diem coverage. And I applied, I mean, yes, I interviewed, but I was immediately accepted. Um, locums work. I can tell you probably you and almost every physician in the country, we are getting emails and calls and texts about locums work. There's just no way, there's no way to get off those lists. I don't know what to tell you, but <laughs> if you wanted to do it, you could very yeah. easily. Right. So it's just like a matter of what you really want. Um, aesthetics. I'm kind of going down the list and term. I, I'm giving you a, a kind of rundown on, on all of them. Aesthetics, I will say, requires an initial investment of, of money and time in terms of taking classes and doing some doing training and then buying product. So I'll say, I mean, you could easily, quote unquote, break into it. You just have to sign up, if that makes sense. It's not hard to, quote unquote, break into. Um, but it does require an initial, you know, financial and time investment. Um, medical expert witness work. I listed myself on a directory and I, you know, over the course of maybe six months, I've been asked to join three cases. So again, they kind of came to me to ask, um, but I just listed myself on just one directory. So which, which one? Uh, Seek S-E-A-K. I don't know if you get okay. those. And does that one cost money? So that one does. So it costs it. It cost uh, $600 to list yourself. And that was the, I picked the lowest, most inexpensive kind of bracket for listing. Um, You can, of course, the higher tiers and you'll be the first, you'll be the number one search and those cost more. Um, But the seek one, yes, $600. However, if you don't get any work in one year, get your money back. But I've gotten three. Yeah. See, so it's almost like, why not? Well, if you don't take any work or if you don't get offered any work. That's a great question. I don't know. I was, uh, I, I've I've taken, I've taken three, I've taken three. I've turned down a couple, um, but I have taken, I've joined three. So I can't, I will never know. I'll never know, but it was well worth the $600 investment. So you, you said about the, let me rephrase that. You live in San Diego and you do Botox and fillers. So that to me, I would think like if yeah. you were in the middle of Wyoming, mm. right, with with no where you could keep the Botox outside because it's so <laughs> cold, right, yeah. with no cosmetic practice for miles mm. around, I mm. could see 
that being an easy thing. But you're yeah. a pediatrician in San Diego and somehow mm-hmm. are managing to do fillers. Like I live in I live in you know, New York City suburb. Okay. And so there are tons of cosmetic surgeons. There's the battle between general plastics and facial plastics and then oral surgeons and oculoplastic surgeons and all of these, everyone's done a fellowship or two fellowships or three, right? So like, okay, 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 okay. Let me me say, all right, I've got, I've got plenty to say about this. So I'll tell you how I started. A friend of mine, uh, her father is, was a retired vascular surgeon in Iowa. Uh, not even Des Moines, like some other, I've never been to Iowa, but some, some other po- part of Iowa. He was a vascular surgeon who, uh, after you know, nearly 30 years of private practice, vascular surgery, you know, was approached by his front desk ladies, receptionists, who said, hey, would you, you know, maybe consider, you know, doing, you know, physicians have to own these practices. So could you incorporate this somehow? Um, So, and he, he, his own words were, I'm a crusty white guy. Why would anyone come to me for any of that? Those were his words. Um, But he was a very good businessman. So he, you know, looked into it. He already had being vascular, doing vein work. He already had lasers. A lot of med spas, you know, do laser work. Um, And he got a practice up and running in, in, I think, six to eight months, Um, kind of hired some estheticians and other people to come in, got some training himself and added it to his vascular practice. Uh, He turned around. Huh? That's Iowa. That's Iowa. That's Iowa. That's okay, Iowa. I'm getting here. I'm getting there. So he then turns around, sells the practice to an interventional cardiologist. Apparently, the he he said the the margins on the aesthetics work work uh, the aesthetics arm of the practice were so big that is what sealed the deal. Not the like cabbage, you know, vascular actually saving lives part. It was the aesthetics part that that like got him got got the sale, got the got the deal. So he tells me, he's like, okay, he's he says, I killed in, you know, in 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 suburban rural Iowa. This is Southern California. This is San Diego. You know, he said, you know, at the time I was younger, but he said, you're young, you know, you're a physician. That is all people care about. And any physician can do it. He was telling me and a number of us young, you know, friends of his daughters who are all young physicians. And so we started thinking, you know, I was unhappy in my pediatric ER life at the time. And I just was like, huh, I never considered it. I grew up in Boston. We don't do that. You know, we're not, we're not, but yeah, we're not, we don't do that. That's not the culture I'll say. Um, and I just, I probably sat on it for like a year, kind of looked into things, was looking at other practices in San Diego, other med spas. And let me tell you, most of the med spas are owned by, uh, let's see, family medicine, OB, uh, um, uh, emergency Emergent former emergency physicians, anesthesiologists, a lot of medical spas are actually not owned by, or operated by the derm, the plastics, the all of that. And and let me just say, so so I started taking ENT, classes. Don't forget ENT. Sorry, ENT. I we will never. should be, you know, up in I, that. Yeah, I, and I will say one of the. So I started taking courses, uh, which you can sign up for, which you can get CME for. And by the way, when I took a lot of these classes that were part didactic, part hands on, I was one of the few physicians in any of the classes. They're all nurses, so you may go to an oculoplastic whomever, whomever eight fellowships later. It's still probably going to be a nurse who's doing your Botox. Uh, so, so just know that it's it's. I was. I am almost always the minority. Uh, 
the physician minority in any of these hands-on classes I've ever taken for this um, because it is so much, so many nurses, nurse practitioners, um, PAs, that's who does the injecting period. That's who operates the lasers. So these practices have to be owned by, again, a physician of any specialty, but your actual injectors, they cannot, they have to be at least, at least a nurse. Sorry. I do say at least a nurse. They can't be estheticians or in others. Actually in California, they have to be nurses. I do believe it is state by state. So in some states, it does not have to be a medical professional. I think Arizona is one where it could be like, you know, an esthetician who, you know, does your eyebrows and then does your Botox. I don't think that's the safest, but you know, I, I get that question a lot. Pediatricians, let me tell you as, as a very pro pediatrician person, uh, I will, I will tell you that I think pediatricians are people's favorite doctors and the most trustworthy you, if I'm outside of medicine, outside of the hierarchy of medicine, where, you know, pediatricians are, you know, the cute little people with the kids in the corner, you know, you say it to a room of non-medical people, People like pediatricians. We are trustworthy. People generally have good memories of their own. They take their kids to them. It's it. They trust us inherently. Uh, and so, when you're doing Botox, you can take out a picture of a couple of babies and be like, you want to look young? That's right. This that's was it. my last client. This was my last patient. I Here lean into baby. <laughs> this is how young you're going to look. <laughs> exactly. And I lean into it. I mean, I kind of say, you know, oh, I, I have a rep to protect. I use the tiniest needles. I do. I use 32 gauge. Um, and so I, I lean into it with almost everything I do. I never, you know, I see veterans and some, they have my name ahead of time. And sometimes they'll say, I Googled you. I see you're a pediatrician. And I look at them in the face and I say, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, we stare down and then we keep going. Um, but yes, I am. Now let's check your prostate. That's right. That's right. Usually it's like the spouse who's Googled me. Never, yeah. never, rarely yeah. the vet himself. Uh, but, but, but all that to say for, 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 uh, aesthetics in Southern California, people just care that you're a doctor. And, and by the way, by the way, my clientele has almost all, I don't have a brick and mortar. I pretty much do it. You know, when I started, when I started this almost, oh my gosh, four years ago, I started doing this. That was the thought that I was going to have a brick and mortar. I was going to have my own med spa and staff and yada, yada. And it was a, a pandemic, I think, decision for me that I was like, that I, I really reflected that this is not my passion. I do not want to be a, a med spa. I don't, I don't want that. And doctoring differently is where I truly love. And I feel like that is my truck? zone of genius. What was that? What about instead of a med spa brick and mortar? How about a food truck? Oh, you know, right? people like have a med said spa that to me. Food like a, truck. People have said that to me, like an ice cream truck that like, you know, like it has the music and it goes down the block <laughs> exactly. and all the moms come out. <laughs> like, they're like, oh, she's here. <laughs> so I've heard that. I certainly have. And it is not a terrible idea. There are mobile tanning beds and mobile IV hydration, as you know. So oh, there's a lot yeah. of all that. Um, so, you know, I'm sure someone's doing it. I don't know that that will be my future either, but uh, it has been just Panini I press. Botox. Exactly. <laughs> I've enjoyed the way I do it. Parties, one-on-one, -on -one, um, and I can, you know, how to start it. I know how to do it if I wanted to. I actually have some nurses who are, I'm medical directors for their own practices uh, in Southern California. But for me personally, I don't really want a brick and mortar. Now that I've discovered, you know, now that I'm really in, in my doctoring differently mode, I want to, to tell doctors and advocate for physicians and teach how to start all of the things that I do. So I think that well, it seems like with the brick and mortar, there's going to be a lot of overhead. Sure. And then exactly. You, exactly. And then you're tied to it. Right. Then you've got an anchor 
That's as opposed exactly to everything right. that you're doing right now, right. you have nothing but freedom. Nothing but freedom. And let me tell you, it is <laughs> the best thing ever. I cannot even tell you. I mean, I'm grateful every day that I discovered this way to work, you know, trusted myself. I'll say I, I won't give you brave, but I will give I trust in myself. And it has been truly incredible. Um, but it was watching my friends and colleagues and classmates, you know, in uh, two years ago, you know, deep in 2020, just struggle and not know about any options and think clinical medicine was all they could ever do. It was that that really just I was like, I have to I have to create something to teach you know, to disseminate this information um, as effectively as possible. It's hard to tell, though, from the way you're talking about it. You don't seem passionate about this material at all. It's not just like <laughs> bursting out of your pores. Amazing. Amazing. OK, so so if you have some parting words for our audience about um, anything that you wanted to talk about today, mm. but didn't get a chance to touch on any of Let's your see. income streams that you wanted to elaborate on a little maybe you didn't get the chance. I think we covered, I think we covered a lot, but we did. We, did. we, co we covered it. I think, you know, and that's why I offer, you know, what I do, I kind of teach it as, as I don't kind of, I do teach it as a six week course. And I start the beginning because yes, it's so people will try to ask me, you know, questions, snippets, and sometimes it pans out for them. And sometimes it doesn't about, you know, maybe pursuing a different Avenue stream. Um, I, First of all, love what you're doing. Please teach the medical students, teach the residents. Like this is my this is my uh, mantra too. But for the most part, I tell them come back at the end of residency. I don't have much for med students, but everyone, of course, is relatively unhappy and looking for some light uh, and some freedom and some some uh, money generating some some lucrative income streams. Um, but what I will say is, you know, my, my main mantra that I say throughout my course is, you know, first of all, there are no rules to doctoring in medical school in residency. We're taught one way to be a doctor. That's full time clinical almost always. You know, we're not taught about the alternative ways to practice, especially the ways that can be lucrative, that can and um, allow us to have flexibility of schedule, flexibility to be with our family. We're not taught those. Um, and so, you know, I think physicians have, you know, our personalities, right? We don't like risk. We didn't sign up to be entrepreneurs. We kind of wanted a very straight path with not a whole lot of variation in it. And, and so by the time we get out of training in our thirties, you know, we're not, you know, the kids come, the house, the mortgage, the bills, the real adulting life comes and we don't feel like this is our time or that we've ever been given permission to explore potentially creative avenues, to make money, to do things that interest us, even with outside of medicine. So I, my, my main my main mantra is, number one, there are no rules to doctoring. And two, you have permission. You know, I like to say if no one's ever giving you permission, I give you permission. I like I like to say doctors don't need permission, but we do. We need someone to say, hey, it's OK. You know, you're you're not you're no less of a doctor if you don't have a full time clinical contract. No one can ever take your education, your experience, your expertise away. No one ever can. Um, and so the thought that once you leave academics or once you leave full time clinical medicine, you can never, ever, ever go back um, is a lie. Um, so that's how it <laughs> that's yeah, I feel like we all graduate with this like relationship with our department chairman that they're like your parent and they're judging you, you know, they're they're looking at your career and they're judging you. And if you're not in academia and doing research and contributing in those ways, those traditional ways, then they're like, You're a disappointment and I never should have let you in this program. But 
there are other ways to there are other ways to doctor. I love it. I love it. So many ways, so many ways. Yeah. And 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 quite frankly, I thank you for what you're doing. I, I have visions of 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 creating hopefully like a money in business, teaching residents, teaching um, um, uh, medical students about how money is made in medicine. Of course, I feel like that is very intentionally not taught to us. Uh, but physicians, this whole system rests on our on our um, labor, and we are we don't see profit margins often in many specialties. And uh, I think that that you know there are just so many there are just so many parts of this that uh, I would I could expand on all day. But at the end of the day, I like to I say I give. Physicians permission to explore anything at all that interests them and no decision is final. And you said you use the word leverage. And I, I love that because as you're exploring these other income streams, you're less reliant on the large hospital system, uh, academic center employment, Absolutely. which means if they want you, Absolutely. well, now you have leverage. Right. And if enough of us, of us have these alternate income streams, well, now we hold the cards and they no longer hold the cards. And if they want us, then they're going to need to pay for it. Right. Okay. They're going to need to in treating us well, fixing the EMR so it's not so awful. So our lives are easier and we can doctor better and maybe the malpractice system. And my hopes are really high about all this. And maybe the aspirations are too big. But this is where we start. You just said everything I say on a near daily basis. That's it. That is exactly it. When enough of us, a, a, a critical mass, a critical volume of us do the exactly that, know our options outside of full-time clinical medicine, I do believe that we as a body of physicians across specialties have the leverage. That's it. So people say, you know, no, not, no, Dr. Lawrence Reed, not every doctor can go do Botox. No, that's not what I want. I want doctors to know they can if they want to, but ultimately I want doctors who want to be full-time clinical pediatricians, cardiologists, OBGYNs. I want them to be able to be, to work full-time if they want to, but to be protected, to have efficient EMR, to have, you know, full six months maternity leave, to have all of the things that, you know, I think that quite frankly, I think short of an actual physician's union, which I'm a huge proponent of, and I don't think my visions are too big. I think we can make it happen in our lifetimes. Um, I think that that will be it. And, and we will, you know, I'll say, I'll say we will regain the leverage. It was lost in the 90s in and around there. But I do think that we're smart enough. I remind doctors how smart they are all the time. And, and by the way, you mentioned um, being uh, less reliant or not reliant on any major hospital system. I am not um, because I've also figured out how to get my own health insurance and how, what to do about my retirement and how to get my own malpractice. All things we can do, but we were never taught to do. Um, and I remind physicians, again, entrepreneurs across the country do it every day. Some with just high school diplomas, you know, how smart are you? I remind, I'm like, I say, remember when you graduated and you had all the regalia because you were a summa cum laude magna, you know, I, right. Remember that you're capable of learning new things. That is our greatest asset as physicians is that we can learn new things. Uh, and that's where I come in. I teach many of them. So where do we begin? Where do we begin? DoctoringDifferently.com. That's it. With Dr. Naomi Lawrence Reed. That's yeah. where you begin. <laughs> That's it. Fantastic. This was 
wonderful. And uh, you kind of referenced this. I'm going to be teaching my medical students some of this material when I come to lecture them in three days. We're going to be including a lot of that. But for the, for the audience out there, doctoringdifferently.com, and you can, you're offering a course, right? As you said, yes. there's a six week course. Yes. And follow her on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram. <laughs> and you can find all those links in doctoringdifferently.com. That's right. And uh, weekly webinars are going to start uh, at some point in the next month or two. So hopefully in June, I'm, I'm going to start doing weekly webinars and really just trying to disseminate the message that thank you, Dr. Block, you also echoed uh, throughout our whole conversation. Thanks for spreading the good word. Rounding out our top three fan favorites is episode 189 with Dr. Sarah Hart Unger, a master in work-life balance. Many of you appreciated this episode for its practicality and relatability. Balancing a demanding career and personal life is a universal struggle, and Dr. Hart Unger's approach combining the getting things done, GTD methodology, with personal experience offers a blueprint for all of us. Dr. Sarah Hart Unger is a pediatric endocrinologist who did all of her education at Duke and is now the Pediatric Residency Program Director at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in South Florida. She's intrigued by the challenges of making work and life fit together, so much so that she co-hosts a podcast on the topic, Best of Both Worlds, with time management expert and writer, Laura Vanderkam. She's married to a vascular surgeon and has three young kids. So we discuss how they managed to get it all done using the getting things done, or GTD, methodology. We talk about how checklists aren't just critical in central line placement, and she has her own checklist manifesto to get your day your month, and your life more organized. She has some favorite apps, although she finds paper keeps her more organized. She then tries to help me get organized so I don't end up distracted and thinking about all the things that I need to do while I'm playing with my kids, and then tries to convince me to clean up my desk. In addition to her podcast, you can find her at theshoebox.com, shoe spelled S-H-U. Sarah Hart Unger, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So tell us your origin story. How did you end up becoming an organizer extraordinaire and turn that into a blog and a podcast? Or was it yeah. writing the blog that turned you into the expert, like what, chicken of the egg? What? How did that work? How did that happen? Well, first of all, I don't know if I can fully call myself an official. I'm sort of like an amateur organization expert. It's something that I love. I've actually been blogging since 2004, which is really before... Most people were blogging. Um, yes. there, was, there was a physician blogger named Michelle O. Oh. She was an anesthesiologist and she wrote a fantastic blog called The Underwear Drawer. And I was very much inspired by her to start my blog like 15 years ago, 16 now actually. And it initially was just about, you know, life. I was a med student at the time. And I did a lot of whining and then, you know, it evolved. And at one point it was more of a fitness blog. And at one point it was more of a parenting blog. But one theme that I've always found sort of like a big key to life is how to organize and how to plan ahead and how that seems to be kind of the key thread in my life that's helped me A, succeed and B, enjoy my life while doing it. So I feel like I have pivoted more and more in that direction. And then I also find that my readers have been the most responsive to the things I've written around organizing, probably because it was just a space that was a little bit less oversaturated. I used to post pictures of like my page and my planner and I would notice that that was what was, you know, shared in jillion times on Pinterest, whereas my poorly photographed culinary concoctions really didn't get any attention. Hmm, I wonder why. So yeah, I think it was like the demand and my interest 
And then the podcast kind of grew out of the blog. And my podcast is done with Laura Vanderkam, which if you are a reader, you may know that name because she has written several books on time management. In 2009, she wrote one called 168 Hours, which is all about you know fitting everything you can into, an, into a week and succeeding and enjoying life while doing it. And I loved it. So I Googled her, of course, found her blog started commenting on her blog. And then she seemed to start commenting on my blog, which at first was like thrilling, starstruck this author. But then we kind of became online friends, ended up meeting up in person because she lives in Philadelphia and I'm from there and we were visiting my family. And then the idea kind of hatched that maybe we could do a podcast together on making work and life fit together. And then one of the main themes in that podcast tends to be that in order to make work and life fit together as a busy professional and one with a family, it seems to always come back to organizing. So I guess that's my roundabout way of saying it kind of evolved organically, but it happens to be something that I am quite passionate about. Right. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. You're going to help me get organized. You're going to, we're going to talk about how you, you, got your, you helped your husband to get organized, and we're going to help all of our listeners to get organized. Well, I hope so. <laughs> okay. So can you elaborate on that a little more? So you, one thing that you m- mentioned to me previously is, is you don't really consider your work and personal lives as being separate and distinct, right? Which to me, I completely compartmentalize the two, right? I might email my wife from work or call my wife from work, but like, that's kind of it. Otherwise they're completely separate or maybe like call a patient back from home, right? Fine. But you're, you're, you're kind of, they're, they're all one entity to you. What does that even mean? And how does that help you to make it work? Yeah. So, I mean, it's true. I, I'm not saying like, oh, I talk to my kids while I'm seeing my patients. Like, obviously, as I'm functioning throughout my days, I have to be focused on one versus the other. But I think it's very, very important to take a holistic view of number one, what you want to accomplish, and number two, really having some kind of hard landscape, whether that's online or on paper, about how that is going to fit together. And usually for any given week, I have six or seven big things I want to accomplish. And some of them may be personal and some of them may be work, but I think they all belong on this weekly list. And when I'm creating my list of what I want to do for a day or I'm putting that together, I have to take what my work is very much into account when I'm creating that. If I know I have a really heavy patient load, I probably can't plan to get some personal things done in the lunch hour. Or if I am more flexible, maybe I'll know that I can go and pick up one of my kids early. Like it, it really does. One very much influences the other. So I use a paper planner to put it all together. I think other people really swear by electronic resources like Google Calendar or other online calendars. But I think that people who completely separate the two are probably lying to themselves a little bit because one is going to influence the other whether you want them to or not. I mean... There's a little bit of a gender bias to this. Um, I think 30 years ago, there were men who were like, nope, actually, no, I do not ever think about my home life when I'm at work and I have the privilege of having some stay-at-home partner who's managing everything. But today, that's not how most of us are going about living our lives. So I think there has to be an admission that we've got to look at things as a whole. And so, yeah, I, I definitely don't consider them separate parts of my life. And when I'm creating goals, I create goals for both personal and work at the same time. Okay. So I think it's in terms of your organization, right? You've got your list of things to do and your list of things to do is not compartmentalized by work and home. It's it's organized by probably priority and 
those time frame. Yes. Yeah, those are going to overlap. So um, you're, you you can't really just right. If it was thirty years ago, I might be able to. Well, I need to get all my work stuff done, and when my work stuff done, then I can go home and see the kids. But that's not how my life works, either. And so. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah. And I think that's, you know, men may, may have mourned that for a while, but I think also men have have realized that they missed out by not being kind of that active participant and family manager. So I know my husband has definitely thinks about both spheres as very important. And I, I don't think he'd have it any other way, even though he's very busy. One thing that I'm trying to get better at when I'm with my kids is not thinking about work, right? So like everyone says, and this is Oh, this kills me. Every time someone's, oh, it goes so fast. It goes so, right, fine. Thank you. That was very helpful advice. Thank you for being the thousandth person to tell me that it goes fast, right? Days are long, nights are short, or, or days are long, years are short, whatever. Fine. But I think one way to make it, to slow it down is to be present. And so something that I'm really trying to get better at is not thinking about work while I'm playing with my kids, not having that on my brain. And so then I can be more, you know, more present, more engaged, more involved, and it actually slows time down a bit. So, and those two things absolutely go hand in hand because the only way that we can be fully present on our task, whether that's a work life or a home life, is to know that everything in the world that you have to think about has been reliably captured somewhere so that you kind of know you can be doing that one thing. And that's actually, I'm, I'm skipping ahead in what I told you I wanted to discuss, but you know, that I got that from getting things done, which is uh, David Allen's methodology, you know, over a decade ago. But he talks about something called mind like water, which is when you're fully focused and immersed on one thing and you're flowing on that one thing and not flitting from thing to thing that you have to do. And the only way you can get to that space, whether it's in seeing patients and seeing them and then writing the notes immediately after and and really practicing efficiently, or it's hanging out with your toddler on the floor, is by having all those loose ends captured reliably so that you can do that without wondering, oh my God, am I missing something? Yeah. And my wife will tell you that I start to decompensate when the stuff that I have to get done by a certain date is starting to accrue and I don't have time to get it all done. Or maybe I do and I don't realize it, then I'm distracted. It affects my mood and it affects my ability to engage with them. So, you know, clearly I need your help. (laughs) Yes. Well, it sounds like what you need is to look a little bit harder at your time horizons and to really create a plan, especially when you do have those things coming up. I mean, there are times that you're going to have a deadline and are going to have to be more work focused. And that might mean blocking out on the weekend before, hey, uh, family, I'm going to be totally present with you guys until 3 p.m. And then I need three hours to disappear and you guys will go on an outing and I'll meet you for dinner. Um, But the only way you're going to know to do that is if you've really thought ahead of the time about about what you need. Or maybe you're going to carve out time in the morning. I mean, I don't know what your particular solution is going to be, but I do think that actually thinking through how long things actually take, making sure that the things you've committed to are priorities for you, and then logistically like blocking them in either, again, online, electronically, or on paper will probably help you from from going so crazy uh, in those moments. Sounds like you have a system. <laughs> I definitely have a system. And my system may not be for everyone, although I will brag that I think it's adaptable for a lot of different people. We are a two-physician household. My husband is a vascular surgeon, and we have three children, two, six, and eight, and we're pretty busy, as you might <laughs> imagine. My husband is a little bit less naturally organized than I am, but even he has adapted several aspects of my system. And I think he feels a little bit better um, as a result. I think this is this can all be learned, right? Like some people have it naturally, but I, I tend to think that like my two-year-old, right? He's funny. So 
he gets a rise out of someone whenever he, you know, he makes them laugh. And so I think what's going to happen with him over time is he's going to kind of realize what he does that makes people laugh versus not make people laugh. And it's going to make it seem like he was born this way. Whereas he wasn't born this way. He just got some positive reinforcement very early on and it helped to mold him and shape him. So you probably got some reinforcement early on about being organized and it, it worked for you and it, it, you know, is this positive reinforcement. So I think we all have the ability to get organized. It just needs to be from an internal impulse, not an external impulse. Like it's, I realize it is time for me. So this stops happening, right? Where I get stressed out around, around my family and bring work stuff home that I get it together. So I think we all, for all the listeners, you can get organized. You just have to be motivated enough to do so. And it's probably little by little rather than turning your whole world upside down. I know there are definitely people that are more, maybe are naturally more organized. I don't even know if I'm one of them. I actually had an incident when I was like nine years old and my teacher dumped my desk out in the hallway because it was so messy. So there you go. Maybe that was the negative that feedback that, been, yeah. that brought me to where I am today. Um, but I definitely think many of these things are skills that A, can be learned and that B, will likely bring you some positive feedback in both your own peace of mind and your productivity so that you're probably going to be likely to, to stick with some of them. At least I think I've seen that in my husband. So my end of one. (laughs) So do you want to start with a a micro level, like how you organize your day and then extend to your year and your life goals? Or do you want to start with the more macro and start with life goals and work work our way to micro? I would go macro because, and actually it's interesting because I was like, you know, once you are organized, it can be kind of hard to see how you got there. But I did recently, honestly, out to dinner with my husband, have this date where I was like, we're going to fix your life. And what we did and what, what I kind of did, but at a much, okay. mine was over a much longer frame of time was I did, we just took like every single loose end and we wrote them down on a piece of paper. And this is again, similar to what getting things done tells you to do. They tell you to basically collect every single input out there. So that's like scraps of paper, bills to pay, like envelopes, notes that you have somewhere, emails, every single email could be a thing to do. I mean, we know many of us have like tens of thousands of those, depending on what your style is. You collect everything. And then, you know, in my husband's case, we didn't collect everything, everything, but we kind of collected everything that he could think of. And he also had some really kind of haphazard lists that were, that had no rhyme or reason to them, but we used them as, as like, okay, well, you have this on the list. What does that mean? What does SBS mean? Oh, it means I need to sign up for this conference. Okay. So I'll turn it into sign up. Oh, for it sounds conference. to me like something, cause he's a vascular surgeon. SBS sounds like something yeah, cardiac so related. Oh, the no, it's actually, a, he's in SBS right now. No, it's Society for Vascular Surgery. It was like a meeting. But yes, it could have been. Anyway, so we took this kind of broad list of stuff, okay? And then I was like, okay. Now, obviously, some of this can just be stuff for the future. It can be for the nebulous future because it's not urgent. Some of it is like stuff that you need to do in the next quarter. And then let's start with the next, let's start with the year, the quarter and future. So we divided it into three lists. We put the future stuff that was like, you know what, maybe you'll get around to that, but we don't need to have a defined time horizon onto a someday maybe list, which is also a concept from David Allen. We put things that we thought that he should do within the year on the year list. And then we took things that were a little bit more urgent and put them on a like quarters or less list. And then once we had those three lists, we took the quarter list and we said, okay, of this quarter's list, what are things that you would like to get done this month? And this was like right around January 1st. So we were like, okay, now we have a January list. And it was amazing because this giant list of haphazard stuff was then brought down to like 12 things in four different areas. He wanted to do this much running to train for something. He wanted to submit this paper. He wanted to sign up for this conference. Like it was much, it was so much more manageable. And I think he could see that um, instantly. And 
he said he felt a lot better. And it's been a, you know, a month since then. And he's been checking a lot of things off and he was able to create a February list. So I think, I mean, that sounds so simplistic, but it is similar to how I do things. I have a giant yearly list. I pull quarterly goals from the yearly goals. I pull monthly goals from the quarterly goals. And then every week I pick from that monthly list and also add kind of those day-to-day things that come up onto my week. And then as I go about planning my day and I do plan my day very intentionally every day, every morning, I figure out what from the week I can get done during that day. And that's also going to be you know influenced by what's going on in my schedule. Patient load-wise, is it a GME day where I'm focused on stuff for a residency program? Or is it a day like today when I'm off and just recording podcasts? So you have separate lists or is there some master list? I actually have separate lists. Um, There are many people that do it differently. So a lot of people just have like a bunch of like notes saved on their phone or it could be... My husband also actually did transfer his to paper because he saw the beauty of that. So he has a giant list that's like on his computer. But when he's Mm -hmm. deciding what he's going to put on the quarter list or the month list... He knows that has to be limited. He knows there can't be 600 things on the month list. So he puts that on a piece of paper because it's kind of nice to see like, oh, these are the things I need to get done this month. I can see them all on one page. And you can even hang that up like in your wall so you know what what your focuses are. So I think that's been really helpful. But yes, I do have separate. I use a planner system called a Homonichi, which is a Japanese planner that has a page for every single day. And it sounds like it's gigantic, but it's actually really, really thin paper. So it's fairly... Portable. That sounds like cheating. It's thin. I know. It's thin paper. It's 365 pages, but they're thin pages, so it doesn't look that big. It's true. It doesn't look that huge. And then I even have, actually, since we have video, I can show it to you right here, even though I know the listeners won't be able to see it. This little, like, tiny, I mean, it's like, you know, very thin accessory notebook. Yeah. This has every single quarterly and monthly list for 2020. And then I can throw it out at the end of the year and it's gone. But it's a very useful tool because I think You're a not lot of people. I'm not going to keep it. No, probably not. In case you have to testify before the Supreme Court of what what you were doing one day. (laughs) My blog can be used for that. (laughs) 30 years ago? Oh, okay. No, I I think part of the beauty is of written stuff is that you can't put 9,000 things on it. Like no one's going to sit there and, you know, fill... 90 pages with their month's goals. So you're forced to actually call your goals to what a reasonable number of things to do because our time is finite. We have to choose. So when you're making your list, does it involve your husband? Some of the things do and some of them don't. Like um, if I'm just figuring out like what I have to do for the week, no, that doesn't. I mean, we try to, uh, well, actually that's a digression. So there's something called a weekly review, which is also a David Allen concept, which is like, do you have a ritual of things you do at the end of each week to kind of get you ready for the next week? And I do, although he kind of suggests that people do this on Friday and I tend to do it on Sunday. And as part of my weekly review, I have actually- Well, there's some religions where the Sabbath is on Friday and some religions it's on Sunday and some religions it's on Saturday. So I think this is kind of like my religion. So there you go. go. No. So on Sundays, I kind of look at the next week's landscape and think about like what nights I might have to work late or, you know, who's going to take the kids to school, what days. And that's when we always tend to look at things together or we'll say, oh, you remember we have like a date night on Saturday and I got the babysitter and the ticket. Like I tend to be the planner of the family as you might anticipate, but sometimes he needs to be reminded of some of those plans. Yes. I uh, actually, we had an incident recently, not an incident, where she, I gave her the access to my Calendly app, which is how I organize who's going to be on my podcast. And so that she knows what days, like, you know, on Thursday, we're doing this on a Thursday afternoon. There are some Thursdays that I take it as an admin day. It's where I do like a lot of my CME stuff or patient callbacks and podcast interviews. Uh, so she knows if I'm going to be around or not. And 
Um, and she thought I had an interview two nights ago because I had, but someone canceled. But she has to, because she doesn't get that email that it canceled. She thought I had an interview at night. So, you know, in case one of the kids woke up, I wasn't going to be available. So, you know, we have to find a way to make that work. And I don't know, are there apps out there like a calendar app where she can, but like that integrates with, that, that communicates. Like I yeah. need her, I, I, mean, I we, need to know when her dentist appointment is. And yet when she tells me it, I don't put it in my calendar. I should, but I don't like, so is there a way to just have that so that they overlap? Yeah. So a lot of people do a shared Google calendar for that reason. And then you oh, can just, yeah, absolutely. And with Google, you can just like subscribe to, you know, you can subscribe to your work calendar. You can, you can get an invite to subscribe to somebody else's calendar. So, and my husband and I actually do use Google calendar together, not <sighs> for, blown. not for everything, but we'll use it for like, okay, well actually I don't really use it, but he uses it. So if I get invited, if basically, if I want to put anything on my schedule that could potentially affect him, I try to send it to him as an invite through Google calendar. And then he can, see it on his phone and and I can see it as well. I mean, you could also consider you could have like a family email account that is shared that you can both log into. And then you could basically have a calendar associated with that account and then just put that calendar on both of your phones. And then either of you could add to that one at any time and either of you could see it. So you could do that. But yeah, electronic calendars are fantastic for that. I know other families like the COZI app, Cozy, because it can be also used for kind of family task management and stuff. I have never tried it, so I can't personally vouch, but that's that's another system I've heard a lot of people use. Yeah, I, I think we are definitely going to switch to the to the Google. We're gonna I'm gonna have to invite her. I could see where it's some it wouldn't work with some people where your your off your business thrives on meetings. So you got tons of meetings. So then, then your partner's calendar is going to be cluttered with all of your business meetings. You know, in our profession, that's basically the entire profession is meetings. So that's not going on our Google calendar, right? Because it's just patient visit after patient visit. Yes. But, but if you were in, a, in a, another profession, I could see where that, that could be problematic. But our listeners are physicians. So I think, I think that's really going to work for, for, for most of us. It's interesting. You brought up the getting things done and the check methodology, David Allen and there's also Atul Gawande's The Checklist Manifesto. So we are no strangers to checklists, yet, you know, we might be resistant to integrating them or maybe even didn't see that, you, right? When you're doing a central line to minimize the risk of infection, you have a checklist. Well, you know what? When getting your You day, can actually apply a lot of checklists to your life management. And I love Atul Gawande's Checklist Manifesto. And I think we don't use enough checklists in our lives. So actually, again, since I have this visual aid that none of our listeners can see, unfortunately, I will show you that I actually have in here Oh, I don't know if you can see. I have a list of what should be happening in my weekly review. Like these are the things, if I do all these things, life will run smoothly. So for example, for my weekly review, I look at my goals lists. It actually says review goals lists, monthly goals, and upcoming calendar, migrate or eliminate prior week's tasks, add new items from monthly lists or projects or if needed, empty physical inboxes, work and home, empty virtual inboxes. And yes, I subscribe to Inbox Zero as well. Um, plan the week's workouts and meals and then review the plan with Josh and our nanny. So like- And is that I know every, that's, that's every week though? That is like, a weekly review. the same thing that comes, that comes up. Oh, so that's on every page of that no, book? that's just in there once. It's just in there once for me to refer to of like, these are the things that oh, like did I do at the all end of, of the things? week, I really need to do those things to make sure I have a successful next week. And then I also have one for the month that's right under that. And then I also have one for the 
quintile. Now I made these all pretty in part because I had a blog and I wanted to share them with my readers and post them to Instagram. I don't know if it had yeah. to, has to be this fancy, but it actually does help to have a list for these, these run of the mill kind of like life organization things so that you, you know, you don't miss something and you can have peace of mind. And you when know, you're on I've been, the carpet with your two-year-old. <laughs> I've been thinking about, we've been trying to say, all right, we're going to have a family meeting every Sunday, right? Where we just debrief about the the, the previous week and then talk about what's going to come up in the upcoming week. But we never have an agenda, so the meeting never happens, and it just never come, came to fruition. But it seems like that is a great way to basically sets the agenda for the meeting, and then you have to have the meeting because you've got this list of things that you need to go through. And also, it's important to make sure that you and your partner are, are on the same page. And that's where, for us, because my wife's a stay-at-home mom. We have three kids the oldest of which is almost four, the youngest of which is five months. So they're they're separated by three years and four months. Three three kids separated by three years and four months. So they're they're really close together and they're all really young. Uh, so she's at home right now, um, which which is great for me because then. But when I'm at work, I'm seeing patients and I'm at home with the family. But there's all this stuff that needs to get done in between, and I feel like anytime I need to get it done, I'm almost like asking a favor from her because then which she's you are because she's she's. Yeah. I mean, putting myself in her shoes like that is really hard. And then I know how it is even with my husband and we both work where if he's like, oh, I have to go in and see a patient when he wasn't on call. I'm like, oh, knife through the heart. Now I've got all three kids. Like, But somehow when I know about it ahead of time and I know that he has to work, it is less of a knife through the heart somehow. So I I do think it might help that dynamic because I kind of can glean what it would be like. And maybe it would even help like if you know that you have a presentation you're giving on a Monday that's like three weeks from now and you know the only time you're going to have to do it is to cram it on that Sunday, like maybe she could get a babysitter to help her for a couple of hours. Like that kind of advanced planning could help both of you and help her. Or maybe she'll say that she doesn't need that, but at least she knew about she it. She knows. You know? She knows. Yeah. It wasn't It wasn't a surprise. And it, you're not waiting for me to blow my stack because I'm getting so stressed out because I haven't found the time to organize this presentation. And Because you just yeah. had it like as an nagging thought was, in your mind. You yeah. didn't have like the plan for how you were going to deal with it written down anywhere or like integrated in, into your, your time. Um, you become I, my I, marriage I, therapist. Did you, do you realize that just it. happened? I know it's going to be my, it could be my, my side expertise. Side gig. I think the reason I like all this is because I am a naturally anxious person and I just can't stand like exactly like I'm getting like secondhand itchiness thinking about, you know, your presentation and your three (laughs) kids and your wife and whatever. So for me, when I run into those situations, I figured out pretty early on, I guess that's the negative feedback. Like if I have a plan for this, or if it's something like, you know, when you're a med student and you're studying for, for one of the steps, like it's this huge thing, but if you break it down and you create a plan for it, it's so much less scary. It's so much less anxiety provoking. And honestly, you'll probably do a better job yeah. with the task itself. Yeah. Cause then you can be absorbed in it rather than being distracted by the fact that now I know my wife's upset with me because she's responsible for three kids and it came as a surprise. And yeah. Yes. Okay. So something else that we talked about before the show is the importance of having a clean work area. So one thing, <laughs> That, that infuriates my wife about me is that my screen is always dirty. My computer screen is dirty. My phone screen is dirty. What? You know, I, I can read it just fine. Okay. Well, my, my desk, but my desk at work also not so organized. I mean, we're on the electronic medical record because so most of those papers are really of zero consequence. I just didn't take the time to organize them until what can go into the HIPAA trash and what can go into the regular trash. So you were going to convince me why I should clean that area up. 
is it bad that I just throw everything into the HIPAA trash? I'm probably wasting money by doing that. Okay. Like, like if I yeah. have a journal, I'm like, eh, I'm just throw it in the bin. Like uh, our, our office is not very good about, well, there's, okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> but there is a little bit of- You're so a monster. Irony, I know I'm a monster. <laughs> so the irony is that I'm sitting in this room, which is my husband's office. And it is like a full on mess because there are some things where you just, you just don't mess with somebody else's Gotta MO. pick your battles. <laughs> pick your battles. Exactly. So I guess I have no idea if my phone, my husband's phone screen is dirty and if it doesn't bother him, that's fine. But there has been at least some evidence to suggest that a cleaner workspace can actually lead to greater productivity. I, I read that in um, one of Julie, I mean, who knows, maybe it comes from biased sources. Like if I'm reading organizing books and it says that, like, you know, where does this evidence come from? Randomized believe- <laughs> trials, like exactly. a sham controlled. It's not actually messy. For people just, that not- read organizing books, no, yeah. Gretchen Rubin wrote a book called Outer Order Intercom, which is also not entirely evidence-based. There's a lot of cute anecdotes in it. I enjoy it. But I think there there's at least some suggestion that having a clean workspace for some individuals can improve their productivity. I am one of them. If I have a bunch of crap all around me, it's it sort of like ruins my ability to think completely linearly and I will notice it. That oddly does not apply to doing podcasts in my husband's office because I think I'm completely desensitized, but I think it's more about the loose ends, honestly. So if I'm in my office, the papers don't bother me because they're not pretty. They bother me because I'm like, oh God, is this something I have to do? And then it's like, an undefined input. It's an undefined to do. I need to get that in my queue, figure out if this is something I need to do today or can wait or where it needs to go. Cause otherwise I'm just, my eyes are going to go to it. And like, I'm going to be distracted by the idea that like, Oh, is this someone's home health, health paperwork that I need to sign? Is this like a resident evaluation? Like, I don't even know what it is. So from that perspective, I think, I think if it doesn't bother you, I wouldn't argue with it. But at the same time, if you're ever distracted by the idea that some of that stuff could be important, it probably is a good idea to figure out a time when you can process that. Now, I don't think it needs to be every day. So my co-host, Laura Vanderkam, the time management expert, I call her the guru. She laughs at my inbox zero. She's like, my inbox has like 9 jillion things in it. I'm never going to erase it. I'm like, that's fine. And honestly, I let mine accumulate too sometimes where it will get to 400, 500 messages. But as long as I know that like every week or so, I'm going to process that to zero, I'm not stressed by it. So I think the same thing can be said for your desk. If you know that even monthly, you're going to deal with everything on there and that you're not going to get in trouble by leaving every, anything in there till the end of the month, then I think it's fine. But if it's completely undefined and it stresses you out because you don't know if that paper was like, a you know, again, like some prescription for a patient that needed to be signed, then you probably need to, to create a ritual around dealing with the stuff. Thank you for giving me permission to keep my messy desk messy. You're welcome. Because, <laughs> yeah, because none of that stuff, at least in my situation, is is anything pressing. Otherwise, it stays on the top until until it's addressed or I can't go home until until it's addressed. I, I guess I, I have a system. It's the messy system. I, I could improve it, clearly. Okay, so... Do you want to go into how you can organize your how how you organize your day? Because I think you covered like macro goals for the year down to the quarter. But what about like you wake up in the morning and you know how how do you how do you know especially with three kids and a, and a husband works how that gets done yeah. in an organized way? Well, I definitely wake up before the kids often, not always before my husband, actually, he often is an early, I'll see him on Epic at like 4.30 in the morning. Yay. Oh, <laughs> so, that hurts our my lives soul. are so fun. But no, I, I get up before the kids and 
or I try to, not always on the weekends, but at least on the weekdays. And I look at my weekly calendar to see like, what do I have that day? I'll often pull up Haiku on my phone, which is like, you know, the mobile epic to see like how many patients I have that day if it's a clinical day. And then I'll sit there and just kind of like write a little timeline of like what I think I'm going to get done in terms of like other stuff, if there's stuff outside of patients. And sometimes it's a day where I'm not going to get stuff done, but somehow looking at everything I have to do and even knowing like, you know what, today's a patient day and really all I'm going to do is see patients, come home, put the kids to bed and relax. I feel much better about that day, having looked at the week's landscape, looked at my to-dos and like made the conscious decision not to do stuff. So that's what I'll do like on a busy patient day. If it's more of a, I'm a program director. So my time is basically like half patient stuff, half GME stuff, and then 10% being home and unpaid and podcasting. Um, But if it's a GME day, then I more look at kind of my big long-term stuff and I decide like, well, what do I need to get done today? Do I need to do our rank list? Do I need to meet with the resident? Do I, or maybe that's already on my calendar. Like I kind of just like figure out what my big rocks are for the day, career-wise and also family-wise, if there's anything that applies, like maybe today, for example, I had a parent-teacher conference. So I knew I couldn't plan to do much else that morning. I couldn't work out. So I worked out later, which is why you see me like not wearing proper work attire at this moment, but I'm home. So it's okay. Yeah. So I I really do take at least 10 minutes, I would say, to put together the day's landscapes, figure out what my goals are going to be, because then that really helps set me on a good trajectory for the rest of the day. And when I'm on as an inpatient covering doctor, I take that same thing. And once I get to work, I'm really meticulous about writing down the order of like the consults and the follow-ups that I'm going to see. And I find that I tend to be a lot more efficient than some of my colleagues who kind of go over with the printed list and like they're going in every which direction. And it's like, okay, take the time to actually put out the fires that are fires so that you're not being interrupted while you're in rooms that don't have urgent stuff. And it really seems to pay off dividends in getting my stuff done. So I have more time to do my notes and teach my residents and and everything else. Yeah, I, uh, that's something that I wasn't great at as a resident because I didn't have a system. But I think it's important for residents, right? Because they they have enormously long lists of things to do. So what do you do? What's the first thing? Just like when the team breaks, and it seems like everybody's running a different direction and rushing to get stuff done. Just take the time to take your list, make, a, make it a, you know, triage it. What are the priorities? Figure out the order that things need to get done and then do it. And it's, you know, it's going to take a couple minutes to do that, but it's worth it. I think residency was when I truly began to embrace the checkbox. <laughs> you know, those patient lists that we'd, we'd print out and then have like 8 million checkbox. And I think I had like different color checkbox that meant like, you know, different levels of urgency. Um, I knew those residents. I wasn't yeah. that resident, but I knew those residents. I, I wasn't. It, it seemed to, it helped my sanity at least. <laughs> I don't know about anything else, but it helped me figure out, it, you know, I could see a light at, light at the end of every, every, every day's task list and it helped my sanity and probably help my productivity to some extent as well. So for our physician audience out there, is there anything else that you think we haven't touched on that you think would help them become more organized in their personal and professional lives? Yeah, don't be afraid to go back to the basics and try new things when it comes to calendaring. I think that so much of organization does tend to come down to managing your time and intentionally planning out your time. I think that uh, simple planning tools can have a lot of power, even silly things like I know a physician who prints out her weekly Google calendar and then writes lists on that. I'm like, that's so simple, but it's genius. And I think that even though you may feel like, you know, it's about sharpening your knives before you start cutting, right? Like you may not feel like you have the time that it takes to plan out your day and it may seem silly, but I urge you to try it. But because I think many times it will pay off 
in dividend. Are there any apps? I know you're you're all on paper. You've got these your your books, but are there any apps out there that either you've heard other people talk about that that help them to get organized? Yeah, I, I don't, there aren't any affiliate links for. If go <laughs> I don't to have show affiliate notes. links, no. Yeah. But I mean, I think Google Calendar is a huge one, and you can actually store a lot of information in Google Calendar as well. You don't have to use it just for calendaring. I know a lot of people really like the app Todoist, which allows you to collect to do lists, but um, there's no one right way. To doist. To doist. T o d o i s t. To doist. Oh, so take out the L from to do list. Okay. Yes, exactly. So that's like basically an app that allows you to keep a bunch of lists separate. Okay. And what was the Cozy app? C O Z I. So that's kind of one that's especially targeted, I think, towards parents that are trying to, it, not necessarily working parents, but it could absolutely work for working parents that are trying to kind of integrate home stuff and communicating with a partner and you could put work stuff in there as well. Any any others? Or you think to do it between Todoist and Cozy and Google Calendar, we got it all covered? Well, I don't know if we got it all covered because I can't say that I'm as much of an expert in the digital sphere, but I think I think Google Calendar and a planner I think those two are pretty darn powerful when when put together. I also, most people probably know this and are already doing this, but if you have an iPhone, the Apple Calendar app, you can pull your Outlook calendars and your Google calendars and it will put them all together so you can see all of them in one place. So that way, you know, I can see my husband's date night, but I can also see Resident Noon Conference, but he doesn't have to see Resident Noon Conference. So you can pick um, and choose which, which get, what gets shared and what doesn't get shared. Correct, correct. And it can integrate calendars from multiple sources, which is really helpful. So where can people find you online and where can people find your podcast? Yeah, so I uh, have an old-fashioned blog that is pretty, you know, the old-school diary blogs that don't exist anymore. I still write one of those. I've written it since 2004. And you can find it at theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com. And then I do co-host a podcast with Laura Vanderkam called Best of Both Worlds. And you can find us on any of the podcast apps. It's about making work and life fit together. It's especially for women, but we have fathers that listen as well. And um, yeah, we have more than 130 episodes. So feel free to peruse the archives. Binge listen on your long commutes. Yes. And uh, links to all of that will be in the show notes. Sarah Hartunger, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that wraps up today's walk down memory lane with our fan favorites here on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. A huge shout out to everyone who tuned in and to our amazing guests, Dr. Sarah Smith, Dr. Naomi Lawrence-Reed, and Dr. Sarah Hartunger for their time on the show. It's been a blast revisiting these episodes, and I hope they've sparked some new ideas or reminders for you all, just as they have for me. As I'm hanging out with my family this week, enjoying our own holiday traditions, it's great to know that we're part of this bigger community, sharing and learning from each other. Your input and stories are what makes this podcast so special. Don't forget to tune in for our next episode, where I'll be sharing my personal favorites. I've got some great picks lined up that I think you're really going to enjoy. Until then, keep doing your thing, stay well, and remember to find those moments of balance amidst the chaos. I'm Dr. Bradley Block, and this has been Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Catch you on Thursday. And now a final word from our sponsor. At Pearson Rabbits, they understand that life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness, injury, or catastrophic event could put you and your family in a devastating financial situation. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Visit pearsonravitz.com today and embark on a journey of safeguarding your future. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. 
you listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.